the optimal life. Sergeant Q, welcome to the optimal life. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me the privilege of being on your platform to be able to share this message of hope with uh, with your audience. Yes, absolutely. Let's get right into it. You went off to the military uh, out of high school. What made you want to do that? You know, it's funny. I grew up uh, in a house that really didn't tell me anything about the military. I grew up on basically a hippie commune in the mountains in Northern California. They actually did a documentary about where I lived called Murder Mountain. And so my parents were marijuana farmers and I grew up in that outlaw lifestyle. So I didn't really know anything about the military or anything like that. Um, but when we left that community, my mom, we, we ended up becoming homeless. And then my mom, um, she left my dad and we ended up moving up to Oregon. And that was the first time that I actually learned anything about the military because I didn't have cable TV. So I never even saw any of the advertisements for the military or anything like that. But I looked at the military as a way to be able to travel and see the world, right? I mean, that's what all the ads are, is travel the world. Um, it, it wasn't as glamorous as, <laughs> as the uh, uh, commercials made it sound, but that's why I joined. I wanted to travel. And then when I looked at the different branches, I looked at, you know, who was the toughest, toughest dudes on the block? And obviously that was the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marines because I wanted to test my mettle. I wanted to see if I had what it took uh, to be one of the baddest war fighters on the planet, man. And so that's, that's really why I joined. What kind of process do they put you through when you're trying to join the, the Marine Corps, for example? Do they give any kind of physical fitness, some mental exam? How does that all work? You know, there is a, a physical fitness test. There's not really a mental exam. There's an aptitude test, right? And so they put you through the ASVAB, which is an aptitude test. to tell you what jobs you'd be better designed for in the military, whether it be like mechanic, driver, different things like that. I scored pretty high and I decided to go into communications, which would give me flexibility to go to just about any unit in the military. So before you go in, there is some physical fitness things that you have to be able to accomplish. They're very minimal, right? A lot of it is like range of motion things, strength tests, you gotta be able to run, make sure you don't have asthma, things like that, really just to make sure that you're physically capable. But then when you go to boot camp, it's a whole different story, right? They put mm. you through all these different rigorous tests and that's really where they're deciding like, yes, this guy can uh, make it as a Marine or he cannot. And so um, it's a lot more rigorous testing than the other military branches. And, and for good reason. I mean, they say the Marines are the first to fight, you know, we're first on the battlefield. So they want, we're kind of the shock troops, you know, so they put us right. through. And, and you like that, you like that idea. Like you said, you want it to be tested. You want to join the baddest group of guys because you had a, a t tough childhood, correct? Yeah, I, I did. And I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that growing up, you know, because um, it was just normal for me to, gr to grow up like that. I grew up, um, like I said, in the mountains of Northern California, where we had uh, limited power just on solar panels. We didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, you know, we, we had a wood stove and that was our main source of heat and cooking. And, and we'd boil water on that stove and put it in the bathtub and that's how we would bathe. And, you know, we'd really subsistence hunt and, um, you know, garden. And that's just how I grew up is, is very minimal. And so going into the Marine Corps, I didn't realize how well that prepared me because going in the, any military branch, but especially the Marine Corps, it's a hardship. And so I would watch through boot camp. Some guys just break, right? And crumble because they never experienced hardship. They've lived with their parents in this nice suburban home their whole life. They've never had to experience hardship. And I'd watch these guys crumble. Uh, and I'd be like, 
huh, I did, it didn't affect me the same way it did them because I had experienced hardship growing up. So it wasn't a culture shock. Now, those guys, most of those guys get over it really quick, right? They get through that initial shock and awe, and then they start to, to build that confidence and they do really well. Uh, and some guys don't. Some guys just wash out. But for me, I didn't really have to deal with that too much just because of my past experience had, had really prepared me to endure hardship. I'm curious, when you were looking to go to the military, you said you were just looking to kind of take a worldwide tour and get away. Were you trying to get away from home? Were you trying to get away from your hometown? Were you trying to get away from people that might have been in your life that were destructive? Was it kind of an escape mechanism looking back or was it more? Was there more to it? You know, like that's your, your, your passion. Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually really insightful question, actually. Um, so I grew up really, really poor in the more mountains of Northern California. So in my high school, I think the graduating class in 1997 was seven students, right? That's how small it was. But even back when I was in grade school, it'd be rainy and snowy up there in the mountains of Northern California. And we were really poor. So I didn't always have the best clothes uh, to be outside in those elements. So I spent a lot of my time inside in the library and I would read tons of National Geographic magazines. I just absolutely loved it. I was kind of a nerd. I'd read through and I'd read about the Maasai tribes in Africa. I'd see the pyramids in Cambodia for Angkor Wat. I'd see the pyramids in South America, the Aztecs, the Incas. I'd see all these incredible places, but I knew I was poor. I knew I was never gonna be able to go and see those places. I could only see them in the magazines. And I didn't know at the time, but I know now that was that was God planting those seeds in my heart for travel that I wanted to see all these places. And so when I saw the military, I was like, oh, wow, they travel they get to see the world. I'll be able to see all these places in the military. Well, all they ever saw was thousands and thousands of yards of sand in Iraq. You know, that, that was it for my, my uh, overseas in the military. But not to get too far ahead, but I'll just plant this little seed right here. I've been able to go to every single one of those places that I just mentioned. And it, it wasn't because I went in the military. It's because I started following the Lord. And I, 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 I found my faith. And then I started in Mexico building homes for the homeless. And from there, it just transitioned into building infrastructure, churches, schools, orphanages all over the world. So I've barbecued with the Maasai tribe in Kenya. I have been to Malawi. I've walked through the ancient ruins of Angkor Wat. I have been to the pyramids in South America. I've been to all these places that I only saw in magazines because I was following my faith and being obedient to what the Lord called me to do. So it wasn't so much you were just trying to escape from your hometown, even though maybe subconsciously there was some a little bit of that because you wanted to, you, you knew there was more to this world that you wanted to see. And this was really your only way to do that. Absolutely. And I saw... I saw my hometown as just being a pit, you know, of okay. despair. Like nobody ever really got out of there. And I look at my friends now that live there, you know, a couple of them have got out, but most of them just stay kind of you right around that, that community. Loop. They stay in that loop, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they never really travel, experience these things. Maybe they, they live an hour away from where we grew up, you know, and some of them aren't alive today because they got too heavy into drugs and violence and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's, it's really sad. And I, I could see that as a kid, like staying here is not going to be productive. I'm not going to be able to live a fully fulfilled life if I stay in this little area. And it's funny because a lot of the people that moved to that area, uh, some of them were old Vietnam vets, I found out later, or hippies or outlaws that wanted to escape like society and create their own little world out there uh, away from everybody else. 
Um, but growing up in that environment, I wanted to escape that environment. So I think wherever we grow up, you know, I think most people want to get out of whatever environment they were in, uh, kind of spread their wings and see what, what else is out there. So you end up serving eight years. And like you said, you got to travel the world. You saw mostly desert sand. And of course, a big portion of that was a combat tour in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Talk to us about the experiences in Iraq that, that you started that you started enduring, which of course ultimately led to the the depression and everything. But what, what were you seeing out there? Yeah. So I um I didn't even have to go to Iraq. I volunteered to go. Uh, it was my last basically year, and so they wouldn't have sent me if I if I didn't volunteer. But I lost a good friend in Afghanistan um, a year prior in 2002, uh, Brian Bertrand. Uh, we went to high school together. I recruited this guy into the military. He served under me for a while. Good friends with him. And he was the first casualty in the war on terror. And so it was a big thing for our community, a big thing from our school. I mean, his dad was my history and geography teacher. Um, And so it really hit all of us pretty hard, me especially, uh, because I recruited this guy in. So there's a lot of guilt and shame attached to that, right? Um, And when the war in Iraq was kicking off in 2003, I volunteered to go because I felt like I owed it to Brian to go and fight, you know, to go and, and uh, test my mettle and go out there and, and fight, um, you know, because that's what he was doing. And so that's why I went. And when I went, it was, war is never what you expect, man. It's not what's on TV at all. It is 90% of the time you're bored out of your mind doing absolutely nothing. And then there is 10% of the time where it's total chaos, chaos, violence, and epic fear. Fear on a level that you've never experienced before. The only thing I can do to kind of explain it to people is if anybody's ever been in a car accident, like a bad car accident, and there's glass flying and the sounds and the spins and all of that chaos that happens for those, you know, three to 15 seconds. Now, take that and multiply that over two and a half hours, you know, for uh, an engagement or uh, and, and then and then do that every other day, you know, and have to experience that that feeling, that gut wrenching feeling, the smells, the sounds, all of that stuff. It, it's like seared into your brain. It's permanently seared into your brain. And now when you just go around with your daily life and you smell diesel fuel or you hear the crack of glass or something like that, it it automatically triggers you back to that moment in time and having that experience. So, you know, when I was in Iraq, I was dealing with those things, but I didn't really understand them. I didn't know what it what it was really doing uh, to me. And I just kind of pushed it down and pushed it down. And when I left Iraq, uh, I remember <laughs> we're standing on the flight line. We've got all of our gear on the tarmac and they're telling us like, we're going to get ready to go. They do all of the searches, you know, to make sure we're not smuggling bombs or babies out of the country. And uh, they they said, all right, if anybody's having any nightmares or PTSD, we want you to fall out right now and go see doc and you're going to get your mental health training or treatment right here in Iraq. And I thought to myself, like, well, I ain't getting out of this line. Like, I'm going home. I don't, I don't want to get mental health treatment here. And so I didn't. I left. And it only took a few weeks of me being home before um, all those intrusive thoughts and anxiety and hypervigilance just really took over my life. And I, I felt like I was drowning. I didn't know how to get out of it. Well, let me ask you, Sergeant. So back on that. So how long were you in Iraq for specifically? So I was in there for one tour, which was about eight months at the time. Okay. Yeah. 
And who was the enemy at that point? Who were you so guys the, fighting? So we were we were fighting the Iraqis, right? The Iraqi uh, national national guard is what they call them. It's their there were little pockets at times. So there wasn't a whole lot of terrorism, uh, other people coming in during that time. As I was leaving, we were just starting to see the IEDs come in. We were just starting to see foreign fighters come in. But when we were there, we were fighting their their National Guard, the Republican Guard, I guess is what they call it. We were fighting them. And I did a lot of research. So I'm a Ford observer. I'm with First Anglico, the Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. So my job as a Ford observer, I call in air artillery mortars. I run all the communications for all of the air on station, medevacs, all of those things. And so I did a lot of research on the first Desert Storm. How did we fight these guys in Desert Storm? And they didn't have a lot of anti-air capabilities. So what they would do, they'd do a couple of things. They'd use artillery. Uh, as anti-air. They would just fire it up into the air. Not very effective, not very accurate, and super dangerous for them <laughs> as well. Right. Uh, but they would also take their tanks and they would kind of bury them under under the sand. And so just the turret would be out. And so that way uh, our tanks and planes, it was harder to hit harder to hit those guys. So I did a lot of research on how they did war fighting. And so I was fully prepared for a long-term entrenched engagement but it didn't really happen. We really pushed those guys out of every area really quickly. The only time that we had super sustained engagements was in Al-Nazaria, which was their Olympic city. And then another one when we got to Baghdad and that was the big push. Um, that's where we started to see, you know, more entrenched, longer, uh, longer engagements. But prior to that, it was just kind of just uh, running these guys out of areas. We hit them with heavy bombardment, start pushing our tanks and uh, stuff. In. Well, not even tanks, but just putting our LAVs in or, or Humvees in and you'd watch these guys flee. And so they would pop up from time to time and fire at you from across the river or like, a, you know, a couple guys in the side, in the back of a, um, you know, like a white pickup truck would be driving by they'd pop up and fire off some rounds but they were so far away that it really wasn't super accurate but when you're shooting at a convoy like you don't have to be super accurate right you're going to hit right. something so we were dealing with a lot of that kind of stuff uh, like I said the IEDs weren't a big thing when I was there it wasn't until I was starting to leave that we started to see that we had a lot of um, scud warnings come in so they were firing off scud missiles and we were all ready for chemical biological weapons, right? Like that's what we were all prepared for. So I remember the days, man, when they would fire off that scud warning and they'd get basically a heat signature on a map telling them that it had been fired, but it would take them about 20 to 30 seconds before they could figure out the trajectory of that thing to tell you where it was going to land. And so everybody in that area would get into full mop gear. You get into these bunkers and you just be sitting there basically waiting to see if, if that thing and was the gear is supposed to protect you or at least mitigate the the severity of the chemical is that well, supposed to, yeah the mop gear is supposed to totally protect you so it's basically this rubber suit that you get into and then you have your gas mask that you put on and that's supposed to protect you from chemical biological agents so when you're inside the bunker and that was some of the most terrifying time, man, because if there's an enemy shooting at you, you, you can shoot back, you know, but when you're in that bunker, you're just helpless. You're just, right. You know, you're just at the praying draw. that you're praying that you're going to come out of that bunker. Is what yeah. You're praying for. yeah, exactly. And then what they do is they send a couple guys out um, that are your NBC guys, you know, your chemical biological weapons specialists, and they go out and they've got these little meters and they're testing the air and testing the ground to see if any of that stuff, that wind drift is pushed into there. And, um, yeah, you know, are you guys a, going into when you're in combat? This is this is fascinating stuff, Sergeant Q. Yeah, when you guys go into uh, you guys are staying put in various areas for days, weeks. Uh, are you are you continuing to progress 
every couple of weeks or every few days to a new location? Yeah, you know, it was every few days, man. That was the yeah. thing that was so difficult is that we pushed so far, so fast into Iraq that it was really hard for our supplies to keep up with us, honestly, because we were moving so quickly um, through those areas. So there weren't any really like main roads that we were using. We we're cutting our own roads through and then we'd get to an area and then, then we just take the big D7 or D9 cats and they would just push up these big berms, you know, that were probably 15 feet high of sand. And that was your protection. Now they have these, these giant bricks, you know, basically, and you fill sand with them and um, like as barriers, but, but we, how we do you fall asleep at night? Up. How do you fall asleep at night with the knowing that the enemy can be lurking and is lurking and can just come out of nowhere. I mean, it can't be a good night's sleep. You know, you know, it's crazy. You're the only person that's asked me these kind of questions. I've probably done 30 podcasts like this and you're the only, you have very insightful questions actually. Um, so here's, here's what you do. Here's what the average uh, military guy would do. Uh, you would push all day to that position. You'd get done around four o'clock. You'd break down your gear. You'd push up your berms. You'd set up your communications. A couple guys would start making chow. And then you would dig a hole, a fighting hole, right? That was probably about six feet long, three feet wide, and about eight to 10 inches deep. And you, you're, what you're doing is you're digging your own grave is what you're doing. Mm. And then that's where you sleep that's where you eat that's your fighting position if the enemy was to come that's what you would use for cover because remember it's it's a desert so it's just flat there's no cover or concealment there so you've just got to dig these holes and so that's basically what you would do every 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 few days where you'd move to a new position you would dig yourself another grave and that's where you would eat and sleep wow, and eat, and th that's what you would do so for me for, for me, I, I did that quite a bit when I was with those guys, but I was also, I ran the retrans site for the six engineers. And so I would maintain positive communication between distant stations uh, on top of being able to call for fire. So I was in a vehicle and it would be me and one other guy and we would travel out, you know, probably six to 10 clicks away from the main unit. And we would be able to help transmit their signal. It would go to our vehicle and then we transfer it out to a distant station to be able to talk to these different units. And so I was out there a lot by myself and it, it doesn't seem like a big deal and it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but man, it was, it really messed me up. That's one of the things I think that, that damaged me more than anything was those long, those long portions of time being out there in the desert with just me and one other guy. And sometimes I was there by myself and which is a huge military faux pas. You should never do that to a guy, but they looked at me like, Oh, this guy's Anglico. Like he can handle it. Just leave him out there. And we're going to pull these guys back and move them forward. How long Sergeant, how long would you be out there by yourself four times? Yeah, just a couple days typically. But I remember uh, before that somebody would come and bring resupply, food, water, batteries, fuel, another guy, stuff like that. Um, and it didn't, like I said, didn't seem like a big deal, but, you can't sleep like at night, like you can't sleep. You have to monitor that radio net in case, you know, traffic is being passed or I've got to bring air on station. And uh, I, like I said, it didn't seem like a big deal, but I couldn't really sleep. Like I would fall asleep and I'd wake up startled thinking somebody, you know, was going to cut my throat. That's what I and mean. Yeah. yeah. It, it was this huge startle response every single time. And I still deal with that today. It's much better now, but I still deal with that sometimes. Like taking a nap during the day, <laughs> that's not great for me because when I wake up, I wake up uh, with that heavy startle response where my heart's pounding and I feel like somebody's going to, you know, be standing over me trying to kill me. And that was I want to, uh, 
but piggybacking off of that, not to derail too much, but when you saw like over the last five years, especially this just triggered in my head, the videos that were being surfaced online with the guys being captured by the terrorists, Al Qaeda, ISIS, the orange jumpsuits and our people, you know, tied up and then being burned to death and, and getting beheaded. That had to be a really uh, uh, strong, severe period of time for you to see that. It really was because I thought that was going to be me. I really did. Like that was a huge fear of mine. And, and at one point I became a heat casualty out there and a uh, an army unit happened to just find me. They just saw my antennas and checked me out and uh, I was having heat stroke and didn't know it. So I was, if you've ever seen somebody who's having heat stroke, um, they're delirious. They don't really know what's happening, what's going on, how, how are you, how they don't see reality, right? Because their brain is cooking. That's what's happening. The brain is being cooked. And so it's not operating properly. And so I, I was trying to fight these dudes off because I hear, I think I'm being taken prisoner when really it's just the army. They're just trying to help me out because I'm dying out there oh, and man. these guys are trying to help me. So they, they strapped me down to this gurney because they had to strap me down because I'm trying to fight these guys, even though I'm super weak and I can't do anything to these guys. Right. Cause I'm just totally out of it, but they had me strapped down to this thing. They bagged me with a bunch of IVs they kept feeding me this medication called fenugrin. And so the fenugrin, it's designed to kind of relax you and allow you to, to relax so they can keep the IV in me and I'd stop fighting. Um, and so that made me even more loopy. And I was there for a couple of days before I started to like regain consciousness to like where I was and what was going on. But it was so, uh, uh, that was so det detrimental to my mental health, even though I know now that it was, not the enemy capturing me on a, on a conscious level. I know that, but on a subconscious level, it, it is taking me over a decade to overcome that. Wow. Because it, it, it damaged me so bad, even though I was not a POW, I was not in any danger. The subconscious mind could not reconcile that. And so on a uh, conscious level, every time those triggers pop up, I have to reinforce to the subconscious mind that no, that you're totally fine. You're totally safe. You're okay. That did not happen. That is a, a flawed memory. I have to consciously tell myself that. Um, and a lot of people don't have that situational awareness to, to, to do that. Right. And so they get stuck in this loop where they believe that this thing is happening all over again when really it's not. And so it's taken me many, many years to overcome the, you know, and that's one example of many different things that I've had to use that same technique for. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that even maybe somewhere deep down in your subconscious state of mind, you think about, the brothers or the people that you've either shared combat with that have been on the same team or just other people from other branches that have fought for this country, the United States, who have become POWs, who right. have been tied up, who have, I mean, I think when you, you probably think, holy cow, imagine how I feel, Sergeant Q, how I feel uh, compared to like what those guys have had to feel, the ones that have survived them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so here's the other part. There's a lot of shame that goes along with that, right? Like I don't deserve to have PTSD. Nothing really happened to me. Like my 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 service was very benign compared to a lot of those guys, right? I, I'm not some war hero. I don't have all these medals and awards for valor. Like I just had a regular term of service over there, but I still really struggled. And so for a long time, that really held me back from saying anything to anyone about my struggles, saying anything mm. because I felt like I who am I? I felt like a fake, right? Like mm -hmm. I, 
I, I don't deserve to have PTSD. This is for these guys who've really had to experience trauma and, and have all these awards and things like that. I don't have any of that. And so it held me back for a long time from talking about that. And God really broke my heart and changed my mind about that because as much as I was suffering and this was real and I was really having this, this was not, I was not faking the funk on this thing, right? Like I'm not faking these, this moral and, 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 and mental injury that I have. I'm really suffering from this. And so what God showed me was that, okay, Aaron, if you think that you had this very minimal combat experience, but you're suffering from all of these things, Imagine those guys who who you think are heroes who've had this this very austere um, uh, military experience. How much more are those guys suffering? If you, with your minimal experience, doing one tour, having very easy time over there, if you're suffering with all of this, imagine how much more those guys are suffering. And that is, was really the catalyst is when God revealed that to me that I have to say something. I have to speak up. I have to talk about it because... It, it'll help those guys come forward and have a, have a little bit of um, uh, grace for themselves. You know, yeah, I, say, I, hey, it's okay to not be okay. And you talk about this, I believe, in the book too, healing through service. How so many guys do feel almost ashamed, or no way, I shouldn't be feeling this, so I'm not going to talk about it, and it's making it worse and worse and worse. You talk about three tenets, um, or there's like three different things. That go into the um, into the PTSD. Can you share some, shed some light into that? Yeah, that, that's that's um, that's great. And so I call it the three mental health camps that we all find ourselves in, right? Yes. And so I. Uh, when I wrote the book, I was finished with the book. I wrote it as a small group study so guys can go through it together and figure out how the brain operates. And I turned it into my publisher and she says, you know, Aaron, I read through this and I think that you're missing one chapter. Like, it feels like there's something missing. And I was like, no, that's it. I got everything. I don't, <laughs> I don't have anything else. But it wasn't true because I had this idea rolling around in my head this of this three camps, but it was only half baked. And so I went back to the drawing board and I really fleshed out this idea that had been rolling around with my own experience. And by this time, I'd had about four or five years under my belt working with other veterans, teaching them this process of healing through service, which is what the book is based off of, is the award-winning nonprofit that I run. So the three camps are this. Okay, so you have two minority camps and a majority camp. So the first minority camp you have is called the victim mentality. And these are people who are just a victim of their circumstance. They never take any personal responsibility for anything that happens to them. And we know people like this in our life, right? Uh, or you might be this person. I know I lived in this camp for a long time, believing that the government owed me something, that everybody owed me something because I went and fought for my country and now I'm homeless. I don't have a job, can't pay my bills. I'm having these medical problems. And, and all of that was true, but I had to realize that I was 50% of every one of my problems. Mm. And so once I started taking personal responsibility for my healing, that's when things began to change. So everything that happened to you, all those things in your life that are holding you back, if you guys are listening right now, all those things that are holding you back, it's true. They really are holding you back, but it's only because you refuse to let go of them. The minute that you let go of that past hurt and pain, you can ride that like lightning onto victory. And that's what mm -hmm. I've done. I've taken all of that bad stuff that's happened to me and I've used it as fuel to empower my life 
and be able to to speak life and hope into other people. So that's the victim mentality, right? Is okay. people who have no personal responsibility, and we know these kind of people, right? Uh, I it's, mean, these people are. This is everywhere, though. I mean, that's yeah, just, yeah, it, right? it, yeah, it is, it is. And the reason it's everywhere, I'm going to drop this statistic right here. It says 67% of men in America admit to having a mental health crisis in their lifetime. So 67% of men, that's two out of three men in America admit it. So imagine how many didn't. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Right. So we're right. all dealing with trauma at some level, car accident, divorce, abuse, you know, uh, being robbed. Like all of this is trauma. And so we need to start talking about it so we can start finding solutions to overcome it. So the victim mentality are people that take no responsibility. But on the other side, we have- That was the I first call, minority. Yeah. What's the, what's, okay. Okay. Yeah, first minority is the victim mentality. They take no responsibility, right? Okay. They just blame everybody else for all of their problems. On the on the right side, we have what I call the denier camp. And these are people This is also a minority position. This correct? that's correct. This is okay. also a minority camp. And these are people who don't believe that mental health is a real issue. They think that people should just get over it if they were stronger, if they were tougher, uh, if they just tried harder. Um, and what I hear from the faith community sometimes is if they just prayed more, you know, then then you'd be able to overcome this. And then I have to kind of pull those people aside and explain to them, you know, how a physical injury and a mental injury are the same thing. And if, you know, and I asked people, I said, would you be comfortable going up to the double amputee and saying, hey, brother, if you just prayed more, them legs are going to grow back, man. You're going to start kicking. Yeah. Probably right. wouldn't do that. Now, could that happen? Absolutely. Our God is a powerful God. Totally could happen. But I doubt very much that people would go up to somebody who was an amputee and say that to them. So why would they say that same kind of comment to somebody dealing with a mental wound. And right. so a, a lot of times, uh, well-meaning people say things that are at a detriment to the mental health conversation. So again, those are minority camps. You have the denier camp on the right and you have the victim mentality on the left. But the majority of us, we live in the middle. And when I call it the silent majority, because they're guys like us who have experienced trauma, who've experienced hurt and pain and we're too afraid to say anything to anybody about it. We're doctors, we're lawyers, we're police officers, we're firefighters, we're military, we're moms, we're dads, we're all these different kinds of people who are surviving. And some of us are even thriving, but we still deal with these mental health crises from time to time. And it's us, it's the silent majority. We're the ones who have to step forward out of the darkness and tell people about these struggles and not keep it quiet because when we we're the ones who can change the conversation because when we stand up and say hey i struggle with mental health it changes the conversation for everybody right somebody like me who has some accomplishments in my life i i started a business 14 years ago where i employ over 110 people now in the pacific northwest i'm a published author public speaker i have an award-winning nonprofit. i have a technology startup i travel the world i do all of these great things but there's days that it's hard for me to get out of bed there are other days where I'm having anxiety so bad, I've got to crawl under my desk and try and fall asleep so I can reset my body so it's, my brain stops pumping cortisol and adrenaline into my veins and freaking me out. And so when I tell people this, like, yeah, man, I, I do all these things, but I struggle with mental health, it changes the conversation. For the people on the left who are stuck in that victim mentality, it gives them hope that they can do better and be better. And for the, the deniers, the guys on the right, it changes their idea of what they think mental health is, right? PTSD and mental health isn't just some broken drunk on the side of the road who can't get it together, right? Like that's not it. That's that's a minority of people. The majority of us are very successful business owners, moms, dads, 
you know, we, we are very accomplished, but we still struggle with mental health. It changes their idea of what mental health is. But the most important thing that it does is it empowers the silent majority to step forward and say, hey, me too, and start the conversation in their own friend group. And that is the only way that we'll be able to walk out of the darkness together. Oh, that is so beautifully said. One of the most beautiful passages in my 200 plus episodes uh, on this podcast. That was incredible and and so powerful. And I want to get I want to get back to that. And, and I know we're starting to run a little short on time, but I want to go back to to you um, and tie it back because you came home from Iraq, and it got so dark after your PTSD kicked in that there was a point in time where you literally, I think went to a parking lot and intended on taking your life. Take us back to that day in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was dealing with the trauma that I experienced, right? And by dealing with it, I mean, just putting in what I call the deal with it later box, just packing it down and then uh, self-medicating with alcohol. Like that's what I was doing. And would right? you, I'm sorry, real quick, would you say you were in the majority, silent majority camp at that point? Oh, 100%. Okay. 100%. And I was really struggling. Uh, I'd come out of the victim mentality because I was starting to realize like what, how the brain operates, what can I do to fix it? I was just starting my journey with that. So I was just coming out of this victim mentality into the silent majority but I, I was afraid to tell anyone. I, um, I was managing my, my trauma. Uh, I was the sales manager for a car dealership. I had a, a, a condo that I bought and, you know, I was doing okay. I was, I was kind of on the upswing and then I experienced another trauma in my life. And December 22nd of 2007, I had a home invasion robbery and I ended up shooting and killing the guy who broke into the armed assailant who broke into my house. And when that, yeah, when that happened, all of that past trauma from Iraq and my childhood, it just hit me like a tidal wave. And I went from December of 2007 to July of 2008. And in that six months, my mental health just hit rock bottom. And I found myself driving around on the 4th of July looking for a place to end my life. And I found this giant vacant parking lot. And I decided to drive in there uh, and that's where I was going to end my life. And I backed my truck up against the building and it's July in the Northwest. So it's a little hot. So I rolled down my window just to get a little bit of a breeze to come through. And when I, when I uh, did that, I could hear these kids playing on the playground right next door. Um, And I thought, well, I'm just going to wait. I don't want to do this and have these kids have to deal with it. So I'm just going to wait. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And then the next thing I knew I woke up, I'd, I'd fallen asleep. And when I woke up, those suicidal ideations were gone. And so I just started my truck and I drove off and went about my day. And you had a pistol with you or a nine millimeter? Yeah, yeah, I had a nine millimeter pistol um, sitting right there on on my, uh, you know, on my center console of my Dodge Durango. And I I drove off, uh, not ending my life, I drove off. And a few days later, I was invited to go to church. And I was like, nah, it's not for me. Religion's not my thing. I'm not interested in that. No, thanks. And uh, I woke up that Sunday and I, I looked at that address and I was like, ah, I'm going to go check this place out. I, what have I got to lose? You know? So I drove to the address and uh, I drove right back into that same parking lot that I had almost ended my life in. No shit. Yeah, dude. Wow. I was, it was a surreal moment. I remember driving back into the parking lot. Like what did I did I die? Am I stuck in some weird loop right now? That had to right? be an out-of-body moment for you. 
Dude, it was so creepy uh, to drive back in. And I remember getting out of my truck and I could see where I had parked before, you know, on the left side of, of the church. And here's the thing. There's a church and a school there. And so the playground was the school playground for the, the, the um, school that, that was there. And so I go to church and I'm listening to the pastor and he's talking about feeling lost and alone. And I'm like, dude, this guy's reading my mail. Like this is everything that I'm dealing with. And so uh, I went for three or four weeks and he concludes the series and he gives the altar call and I give my life to the Lord. And I thought, okay, great. This is it. Everything's going to change for me. But it didn't. <laughs> Nothing actually really changed. Um, but I knew that there was something there and I needed to find out more. So I joined a small group and I started doing a Bible study with a group of guys understanding the Bible. So remember, I'm just now reading these medical journals trying to figure out how my brain operates so I can fix it because it's malfunctioning. And now I'm reading scripture and I'm seeing these incredible parallels between the two. And my mind was blown. I was like, wow. What medical science is telling us today, scripture has been telling us for 2000 years. And so right. I created just this little plan for myself, never to teach anybody else, just for myself to overcome trauma. And utilizing this, this program that I created, like I said, I've been able to build this, this company where I employ over 110 people. And then God called me to teach this to other people. And so that's that's where we're at. That's what I do now is I, I take guys uh, from all over the country and we go down to Mexico and in two days we build a home for a homeless family. And I teach them the fundamentals of how the brain operates, how scripture relates to that and how they can heal from trauma by serving other people. And there are countless studies out there that, that prove this. Yeah, that's incredible stuff. And I, I, that really struck me that if there's people that are feeling suicidal and they feel like this is it and they can't go on, take a nap. You yeah, woke up take from, a you, nap. Take a nap. You woke up from your nap and had a different. You you didn't feel that strong sense. You might have still been depressed as a as all hell, right? But but you didn't have that burning desire to end it all. Yep. T take a nap and get, and then when you wake up, get something to eat. And so that's scriptural too. I think it was Elijah. Um, he he was in the Bible and he had he basically like destroyed all of these uh, pagan witchcraft people, right? He called fire down from heaven. I like to say he was the first forward observer, right? Because he calls fire down from heaven and he kills all these pagan priests. And then he gets afraid. And he, so he flees the area because he's afraid the queen is going to have him killed. So he flees the area. And he's lamenting over this, right? He's praying. He's like, God, just, you know, in my life, take me now. And he's having all this anxiety and stress and he's begging God to just end his life so he doesn't have to endure what's coming for him. And then he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, there's an angel there, like cooking him some eggs and potatoes, man. It's a fascinating story in the Bible. And so that That's was incredible. me. That was yeah. me. I'm like, I need a nap and a snack. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. Hey, uh, before we finish this off, um, this has been fascinating, and we should do this again because I feel like we're just scratching the surface, and we can probably go a bunch of different ways. Um, for people that are struggling, that have these emotional triggers, PTSD, over overcoming trauma, you know, it, it, it creeps out out of nowhere, and sometimes it's really hard to control or to even know when it's happening. So. What is, what is some low-hanging fruit advice that you can give to anybody when they're starting to feel that trigger or they're starting to feel the anxiety, the angst, the tingles, or whatever it is, are there th certain techniques that you employ that can help them kind of just calm things down? Yeah, so there's three things that I'm going to tell you guys. Number one, look up grounding techniques. 
and learn how to use these. Okay. So what's happening is when you're going into that PTSD moment, your subconscious mind is coming to the surface and your conscious mind is reverting back. It's shutting down. During a mental health crisis, uh, your conscious mind shuts down, which has good decision-making skills, long-term planning, and the ability to overcome impulses. And we know that suicide's an impulse. By talking to people who survived an attempt, they all regret it. We know it's an impulse. They had the impulse and they acted on it without being able to process through that moment in time. So a couple things you can do. Number one, you need to learn some grounding techniques. So when you feel that happening, you can revert back to your training and do these grounding techniques to bring your conscious mind back online, right? Number one. Number two. What's an example of that real quick, Sergeant? Okay, so uh, a grounding technique, and there's a bunch of them out there, but uh, one that I like to use with people is I have them name five things that they can see in their environment right now. Five things they can see, and you name these out loud. Uh, Number two, name four things that you can touch. Like I can touch the desk. I feel my feet on the floor. I feel the cushion on my seat. Four things you can feel. Three things that you can hear. So listen intently. What are three things that you can hear? Two things that you can smell. Smell is the sense that's most related to memory. Okay. So what do you smell right now? Food, cooking, perfume, candle. What are you smelling right now? You smell like you need to take a shower today. Like what are you smelling? Uh, And then the last thing uh, is something that you can taste. And so I tell people to, to take a piece of gum, take a drink of water. What can you taste? And bringing those senses uh, u- utilizing your senses brings that conscious mind back to the forefront. Okay. And so there's a lot of different grounding techniques you can use. That one just so happens to be my personal favorite. Beautiful. And I actually teach this to law enforcement um, when I do their their trauma training. Um, when they're dealing with an individual who is kind of getting out of control and getting amped up, I have them just pause the conversation. Hey, we're going to do this technique real quick. It's going to help you process this moment a lot better. And so I teach this to them as well. It's super effective. But That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you need to create yourself a squad, a group of people that you know and trust that you can talk to when you're struggling with mental health, right? That aren't gonna judge you, they're gonna be there to support you. And you can give and receive social support in this group. So it's not just a one-way street. It's you help them, they help you. And so that's the second thing. That's the second thing uh, that you can do. And the third thing is to go to therapy early and often. It's, It's not, it's not shameful to go to therapy. If you had a broken arm and you had to go to physical therapy, you wouldn't be embarrassed about that, right? Well, a mental wound is just like a physical wound. You know, if you had a broken arm, you would tell your friends like, hey, I got a broken arm. Can somebody take me to the emergency room? They would take you there. Doctor would see you, give you some medication in the short term to deal with the pain. They would reset the bone and then give you a a regimen of physical therapy. And all of your friends and family would give you grace and space so you could heal. Well, a mental wound is the same way. When we experience a mental wound and we're starting to have those trauma triggers, we need to tell somebody so they can get us to the appropriate medical treatment that we need. They may give us medication in the short term, and then they're going to give us a, uh, a, a mental health plan. And we need to go back to our friends and family and tell them what that is so they can also give us space and grace so we can heal. So grounding, community, and therapy. And, and the therapy you're saying is really, when you say early and often, you're really saying proactive. You might yeah, be having absolutely. a great couple of weeks. You think everything's good. I'm done. I'm, And then boom, it's going to hit you. So stay proactive with it. Yep. And, and, and utilizing these three things, uh, I actually created some technology called Q-Actual. Originally, it was designed just for the military called Operation Pop Smoke. But uh, a hospital group out of North Carolina picked it up and they put it through medical trials and it came out. The results just were released. It was 100% effective at preventing suicide and over 90% effective at reducing um, 
readmittance into the emergency room for suicidal ideations. So the results were astounding. And so right now we're looking at scaling this app so we can put it into every emergency room across the world. But if you want to get if you want to get it, you can. Uh, there is a paywall. It's going to cost you, you know, like 20 bucks a month um, for this technology, but it helps you create that squad that we just talked about, right? So you download it and you send an invite to two or three friends. They download it and it's just a chat app. You're just chatting with each other uh, on a regular basis. But when you start to get into a mental health crisis, a lot of times people struggle with who do I call? What do I say? I don't know what to do. That's why they just took the suicide hotline number and made it three digits because they recognize that the brain's malfunctioning. So to overcome that, when people have this, uh, have these feelings, they can push one single button on their app and it sends an Amber alert, similar to an Amber alert out to their friends and family who have the app. And when you do that, when you initiate that signal, it starts the grounding techniques that we just went over, right? It puts you through those grounding techniques so you can start having cognitive thought as you're waiting for your squad to answer up on chat. Now for your squad members, uh, it pops up on their phone like a little alert, they select it and it takes them in and they're instantly chatting with you uh, or whoever's in distress. But even if that individual who initiated the signal, if they go dark or they stop communicating, it doesn't even matter because as soon as they push the button, it turned on their GPS locator. And now oh, wow. if, if your friends are on the app, they can navigate directly to your position. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, wh where can people go to find you, your mission, all these different things that you offer? Wh where should they find you online? Yeah, so the main landing page would probably be sergeantq.net. So sgtq.net. And from there, you can get to everything else that I do. So I have the book that you can purchase there. Uh, I have an online curriculum as, as well, like a video series. If you wanted to, if you read this and you thought that it had value and you want to bring it to your church or to your group of veterans, you could go through this together with the video series. Um, if you're a veteran and you want to come on mission with us, we're going to be leaving again for Memorial Day. We're going to take a team down to Mexico again. Uh, you can and you just up. did that in the fall as well, correct? In 21. Right. Yes. So yeah. I did that. I did that in December. So I do two of okay. those a year. And then I probably do three other trips. Like I just got back from scouting a mission down in Peru uh, a week ago. I was down there doing wow. that. So okay. we kind of go all over the world uh, and build churches, schools, orphanages, and I show people that there's healing through serving others. And so you can, if you're a veteran and you want to connect with me there, you can do that uh, to sign up to go on one of these trips. Uh, if you want to find out more about the app and the technology, you can go to qactual.com or operationpopsmoke.com. And if, if here, I'm just going to pitch this out there. If, if you've been listening to this and you're thinking, hey, man, I want to get involved in this, this technology startup, you can do it. I'm doing pitch decks right now. We're looking for uh, investors. Not to invest in the technology per se, because it's already built. It's already gone through its medical trials. It's literally just so I can pay staff so we can roll this thing out uh, across cool. the country. And so we're doing those pitch decks. So there's uh, an investor package. If people are interested in that, you can reach out to me uh, and I can get you connected with, with all the pertinent details for that if you want to help me roll this thing out across the nation. Hey, this is uh, super impactful, super valuable. I really enjoyed this conversation today, Sergeant Q. And we will link you up in the show notes. Sergeant Q, that's sgtq.net. And as he said, you could find everything we talked about through his website. And uh, hey, man, thank you so much for your authenticity, your insight, being raw, being open, and uh, shedding light on this really important topic. So I look forward to staying in touch with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. 
And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.